Did you know that you can listen to every single episode of Gangry the Podcast on our website? Just go to gangrythepodcast.com and you can listen to interviews with amazing writers and reporters like Pamela Koloff, David Gran, Janet Reitman, Tom Juneau, Eli Saslow, Ben Montgomery, Landa Gregory, and so many more. Just go to gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. For this episode, I talked with John Woodrow Cox. Cox is an enterprise reporter for the Washington Post. He's currently writing stories focused on how the COVID pandemic is impacting children. On October 7th, the Post published his latest story about the Marquez Green family in Connecticut. They lost their daughter, Anna, at Sandy Hook and recently had to make a hard decision as to whether they would send their 16-year-old son Isaiah back to school in the middle of the pandemic. And for them, you know, the stakes were were very real because, you know, he didn't just go to a a regular school, he went to a boarding school. So it was actually a place they were going to have to send him off to, much more like college. Uh, You know, he's 16 now, and so that was a a real struggle. You know, this year had been very triggering for them, and it really, in in many ways, brought them back to um, the Sandy Hook tragedy in 2012. Reporting during COVID was a bit of a challenge for Cox. He did a lot of Zoom calls and visited Connecticut twice, but he never actually went inside the family home. Everything was done outside. Cox has a wonderful scene showing Isaiah, who had a learner's permit, driving with his mother, Nelba. How did Cox get that if he wasn't in the car? So they they were going on these driving uh, practice practice every day. Every afternoon, Isaiah would go drive and, and Nelba would go with him. And um, so I just asked her at some point when she was doing that to, uh, to FaceTime me. And uh, so I got, you know, there's a beginning of one section is just the description of them driving. And what she did is she just turned on her phone and set it to the side. And, and I just sat there for half an hour as they uh, practiced driving. Cox was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in feature writing in 2018 for his series of stories that look at gun violence and how it was impacting children. His book, Children Under Fire, An American Crisis, expands upon that coverage. That book will be available on March 30th of next year. Cox was on Gangry the Podcast way back on episode 12 in October of 2013. At the time, he was a reporter at the Tampa Bay Times. Since he was on the show, he's won Scripps Howard's Ernie Pyle Award for Human Interest Storytelling, the Dart Award for Excellence in Coverage of Trauma, and Columbia Journalism School's Meyer Mike Berger Award for Human Interest Reporting. As usual, I've linked to a lot of Cox's stories on our website. You can find that along with his original episode at gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, would you believe that it has been almost seven years to the day since we last talked uh, for an episode of Gangry the Podcast? 
Wow, I didn't realize that. Uh, yeah, it feels like a, another lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> right, you were episode 12, and now you will be wow. episode 84, which is kind of crazy. Wow. I can't believe that, personally. Um, but it went live on October 31st of 2013. So amazing. It's wow. crazy. Well, congratulations. Thank you. I'm, yeah, I'm excited. I'm trying to figure out how many episodes am I going to go? Do I go to a hunter? Do I just keep <laughs> going? We'll figure it out. So, um, at the time when we talked, of course, uh, you were at the Tampa Bay times and you were doing, we talked about the dispatches from next door series, uh, for the Floridian magazine. Right. Yes. So, yeah, that was, uh, I'm writing a little longer now than I was then, but <laughs> <laughs> right. definitely. Um, you know, you know, I asked you to, to come on the show after reading your piece um, uh, from almost a couple weeks ago now. Um, it was a story that was focused on the Marquez Green family uh, from Newtown. Um, I read that story and, and I, I'll admit I was in tears a couple of times as I read through it. And, and I don't know if that's because I live in Newtown now or, or just because it was so impactful. Um, can, can, you, can you tell me a little bit about that story? What was it about? Sure. Uh, so, you know, this year I've, I've, I'm doing a series on how the pandemic is impacting children uh, in America. And um, a few months ago now, maybe three months ago, I was, you know, sort of in search of the next one. And um, I got, uh, I, I had known Nelba uh, for years, since 2017. I'd interviewed her back then. But, you know, she just confided that she had re was really struggling with the idea of allowing her son to go back to school. And the, the reason was is that her, uh, her daughter was killed in the Sandy Hook shooting. And at the time, in 2012, her son was in third grade. So he was in the school that day as well, but survived. And now uh, she and her husband, Jimmy, were wrestling with this idea of, uh, you know, can we let our our surviving child go back to school in the middle of a pandemic. And for them, you know, the stakes were, were very real because, you know, he didn't just go to a, a regular school. He went to a boarding school. So it was actually a place they were going to have to send him off to much more like college. Uh, you know, he's 16 now. And so that was a, a real struggle. You know, this year had been very triggering for them and it really in, in many ways brought them back to um, the Sandy Hook tragedy in 2012. And, uh, so yeah, I, I just followed them over the course of about two months as they wrestled with that decision, and then ultimately, um, you know, when he went back to school. Um, I was going to ask how it came about, but it sounds like um, you you kind of already answered that. Um, but uh, I'm curious, given the, the thick of the pandemic, um, how did you report it? Uh, you know, I know a lot of reporters who have not been going out on the road. Um, for, for obviously for, for sound reasons, but I'm, I'm curious, it almost read, you had to have made trips to Connecticut uh, to do this story. I did. Yeah. I went there twice and, you know, I, I have been traveling um, during the pandemic. I've, I've, uh, I had a story in, out of Michigan. That was the first time I traveled about through these three um, Iraqi refugee kids who lost both parents to COVID. Um, this was, you know, fairly early after the pandemic started. So I drove, I drove there. It was like a nine or 10 hour drive. I drove there and spent about a week. Uh, and then I, I went twice to Connecticut. Um, you know, the, the Marquez green family 
takes this very seriously. And, and, you know, Jimmy, um, the dad is, uh, is, um, asthmatic. Uh, so, you know, they had real concern and of course they were going to great lengths to keep Isaiah healthy so that he could go back to school or at least have the option to go back to school. So I never did go into their home. Um, and certainly anytime I'm reporting, I'm wearing an N95, you know, I'm taking every precaution that I can. I didn't get into their home at any point, but, um, you know, I did about uh, 15 hours of interviewing um, among the three of them. And those were all through, mostly through Zoom. Um, and then I went up there to see Isaiah practice hockey. Um, and I did a socially distant interview with Melba in the backyard uh, on that trip. And then I, I came up with sort of some creative ways to get others seen, you know, because I didn't want this to be a story that was entirely reconstructed. And so they they were going on these driving uh, practice practice every day, every afternoon. Isaiah would go drive, and, and Noble would go with him. And um, so I just asked her at some point when she was doing that to uh, to FaceTime me. And uh, so I got you know there's a beginning of one section is just a description of them driving, and what she did is she just turned on her phone and set it to the side, and and I just sat there for half an hour as they uh, practiced driving. So I was able to get, you know, dialogue and, and real scene that way. Um, and then, uh, also, uh, I was there, um, the week that he was going back to school, uh, and got, you know, the final section is all live scene. And, uh, you know, one way I did that, I was, you know, I was with them as they were packing outdoors, you know, they were packing the car up and then i i put a recorder i asked them you know if i could put a recorder in the car uh when they were um driving for the last time when isaiah was uh driving his mom driving with his mom you know to the school so I ended up getting really uh, very compelling dialogue from that as well so you know you you have to come up with sort of creative ways to uh, to report right now. And, um, you know, thankfully it worked out in that case. Yeah. I'm so, did you follow them to the school then? Like, did you drive there as well? I did. Yeah. I drove in a separate car so that I was, I was there, you know, so all the description there at the end, I was, I was witnessing all that. I was on campus with them and, uh, really, they were comfortable as long as we were outdoors, you know, they were comfortable with me being, uh, being there with them. Um, it was just, you know, indoors, of course, is, um, I never was, I don't think I ever was indoor, yeah. uh, except for the hockey practice. I don't think I ever was indoors with any of them, but yeah, I was, I was there for that whole, uh, that whole final section. Wow. It's funny. Cause I was going to ask you about the, um, the driving, the driving scene, um, specifically because, um, and, and I don't know if you know this, but in, even in like normal times, um, it would have technically been illegal for you to be in the car with a 16 year old with a learner's permit. And I only know this because my son is 16 and is learning to oh, drive. Wow. Um, and so only parents can be in the car with them when they have a, a learner's permit. So I was like, how did he, how did he get that? <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I had really thought a lot about, um, how, cause I knew, I knew they were going to be driving. I didn't know that Isaiah would be driving, but I knew, you know, that, this would be a big moment, you know, it was the last time and, you know, Nelva was dealing with a lot of anxiety. So I knew that that was going to be, you know, important and compelling. And so, um, that was a thing I had planned to ask for, for, for weeks. And, you know, thankfully they, thankfully they said yes. And, 
yeah, I think it, you know, it really, it really worked out that there was a very compelling dialogue in that, in that drive. Yeah. I was, um, looking th- through the story and it's mostly anything that's in quotation marks is mostly dialogue, right? There are very few like direct right. quotes. Is that, is that right? Right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I almost never use, um, quotes. I do. I don't, you know, generally I don't like quotes and, um, you know, Nelva, you know, if you were ever going to rely heavily on, on reconstruction in the story, I told them this, like they were great at that. I mean, they were, uh, they were collectively really good at recall, but Nelva also would, um, she's a prolific user of Twitter and Facebook and she would record things in real time. So like she would record, uh, like conversations with her son, you know, I have a little bit of dialogue at this uh, banquet, the parent, uh, banquet. Um, and she had written about that on Facebook in real time. So right after that banquet was this, this guy who had been, um, he'd worked, he was a caterer. He'd worked at the home going, uh, for, um, their daughter. Uh, he recognizes them at this school banquet and says, he kind of gasps when he sees them and she says, are you okay? And he says, you know, I was at your daughter's home going. And, so, and then he says, you know, I, I think about you and your family every day. And I got that from, from her Facebook page because she, at the time on that day, she had said, she had recounted this story. So, um, you know, there were, uh, I never, in, in terms of relying on people's recall for dialogue, uh, you know, I never trust more than uh, a few words, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like that whole that whole first section is reconstructed, but the dialogue I use, you know, some of it is uh, very clearly what Isaiah remembered thinking at the time, and then a little bit of dialogue back and forth um, between Isaiah and his mom, and you know, but it's never more than three or four or five words. You know, I never use reconstructed dialogue that more than about five or six words, because I don't think you can clearly rely on someone's uh, memory. But if you have two people telling you, this is what he said, this is what she said, uh, this is what I clearly remember, and it lines up, then, you know, in those sort of situations, uh, I'll use short quotes or short bits of dialogue uh, in those settings. Yeah. That first scene is, it opens up with um, Isaiah sitting on the couch and, and getting the email that his school is going to open. Right. Right. Um, uh, did you know, uh, pretty early on that that was where you wanted to, to start the story? Yeah. I mean, that seemed to be the moment that was, you know, this in some ways, like the structure of the story was, it was kind of a classic narrative, right? That there was, the story was, here's a question, right. And, uh, the reader is going to wait to see how the question is answered. Now, you know, there was a lot weaved into that, but the question was, will he go back to school or won't he go back to school? And that was the moment that the question was asked, you know, and even Isaiah himself, he gets this news, he's excited about it. And immediately the question comes into his own mind. Will I go back or will I not go back? And, you know, what makes the story compelling is the, is the why is there that question, right? And it's because of what their family has, has endured. But I knew I knew pretty I knew right away as soon as uh, as soon as Nelba in, a, in an early interview mentioned that day that interview or that email and her reaction to it and his reaction to it um, 
I knew that that's where I would start. So one of the first interviews I did with Isaiah through Zoom was just having him reconstruct that day from from his uh, recollection, from his point of view. And he, actually, his mother didn't know uh, until I interviewed him that he uh, thought that she was not going to let him go mm. uh, based on her reaction that day. That was news to her because she thought she had really sort of kept her poker face on and and um, and that she hadn't given him any sense that she was really in fear. Uh, but he said, you know, he told me when I looked into her eyes, I just, I saw her fear and I, I just didn't think there was any way she would let me go. Yeah. Yeah. How, I mean, what was it like to, to talk with Isaiah? Because again, I have my own 16 year old son to reference with and, and I could not imagine interviewing him for more than five minutes and getting very much information <laughs> out of him. And I think it's different. You know, they're going to treat parent. you know, they treat their parents differently than they treat maybe a stranger, but what, what how, what was that? What was that like? Yeah, I mean, I think there are advantages to being uh, a stranger and a very interested, engaged stranger. I mean, you know, Isaiah, in so many ways, is, you know, he's this uh, incredibly intelligent, thoughtful um, young man. But he's also a 16-year-old boy. And, you know, I've, I've been writing now for years about childhood trauma and that is pretty much the most difficult demographic to interview the, the uh, a boy who is 16 right. um, because there there's an awareness of, you know, wanting to look cool. And that's not, you know, that's not unique to any of them. That's true for, for all of them. Right. They, they're, they're very aware of kind of how their words sound. So, you know, it took some time, it took some time, but Isaiah and I really hit it off on that first interview. We talked a lot about sports and hockey and, uh, you know, I'd met him before because uh, I, I, had, I had wanted to do a story about this family back in 2017 for, for the series that I, I wrote back then. Uh, and it just didn't work out, but uh, I had met him then. And so we had a little bit of a history. Um, but, you know, it just took it took time. And, you know, it wasn't it wasn't the easiest, uh, I would say, of interviews um, because of, you know, all those things. Right. He's a 16 year old boy. His mom had warned me. Said, you know, look, he's a, he's a 16 year old boy. He's not going to really talk a lot about his, his emotions. But I also don't, I don't really try to get into, um, I'm never trying to make people emotional, right? I write, I write exclusively about trauma and horrible things pretty much at this stage of my career. But I'm also not trying, I'm, you know, it's not a TV interview, right? I'm, right. I'm just trying to uh, understand where people's heads were uh, in a moment. Um, and also understand what happened, right? So the question I ask most often is what happened next? What happened next, right? I, I'm trying to get them to tell me and, you know, reconstruct, reconstruct, reconstruct. So, uh, you know, if I was trying to evoke a lot of emotion out of him, that would have been a much more difficult task. Um, but, uh, you know, that's not really uh, what I was aiming for. Although, you know, he, he did, he did talk about, it was also sort of news to his mom, that sort of the level of, awareness he has about not wanting to uh, do harm to them, you know, that he was, he did talk about that. So, you know, there were moments that I could maybe draw a little bit more out of him, uh, but he was, yeah, he was, a, he was really a joy to, to interview. Yeah. I know um, with this story, there were some, there were some details left out um, for the protection of, of the family. Can you right. talk about why that was needed? And was that an easy decision for the Washington Post or did you have to, did you have to push for that? So no, it was a very easy decision um, because you know I was I, I've been reporting on 
you know, school shootings and gun violence for, for so long that I was aware of these, um, you know, truthers, Sandy Hook truthers who had tormented these families for, uh, since for eight years. I mean, since it began, uh, they'd been calling these people actors. I dealt with that in Las Vegas. You know, I, I'd written a story about teenagers in Las Vegas and I had people on Twitter, uh, messaging saying, no, they're actors. This isn't real. This was all fake. So, um, it was easy to agree to those two, the two, the two things we left out were where the family lived. So they, they moved recently from Sandy Hook to a, a different place. And, uh, we left that out and also the name of the school. Those were both, um, easy things to agree to. Cause you know, they weren't, they weren't, uh, they weren't essential at all to the story. We knew they lived in Connecticut. We knew the boarding school was in Connecticut and, you know, uh, providing that additional detail, uh, didn't add anything. And, and it was something that made them a lot more comfortable and just protected them from people who, um, you know, might show up or, you know, try to seek out them or, or their son. Mm-hmm. You know, I actually, and I mentioned this in an email to you, but I actually met Nelba, um, for the first time, right. literally just days after I read this piece. And it was kind of, it was, it was kind of great actually. And I told her how much I enjoyed the story. Um, and she had the, I think the greatest compliment, I think any story source can give a reporter, um, because she said that you were compassionate. Um, uh, what, what is your mind? And I think that's hugely important. I think uh, I, I, and it's what I teach my students. Right. Um, and I'm curious, like, what is your mindset anytime you're going into these types of stories? Like you said, you've been doing a lot of stories that are traumatic, um, for the people that you're talking to, but, but what's your mindset as you, as you head in? Well, you know, I always say that, you know, we have to be human first, you know, we're, we're humans before we're journalists. And, you know, I think that people can really sense that, um, you know, I, I kind of learned that really when I was a, a cops reporter in Florida, uh, you know, knocking on doors of people who had just lost loved ones or who whose loved ones had just been accused of some heinous crime. You know, you, you had to, uh, the first thing I always tell people um, who have suffered trauma is that I'm sorry for what they've gone through. You know, that's, uh, that's the way I always begin is I'm sorry for what they've gone through. And I, you know, especially when I'm interviewing kids, uh, I try to be really clear, and that's kids all the way from five. I mean, the youngest I've ever done a story on is four year, a four-year-old who was shot in Cleveland and, and, you know, all the way up to teenagers. Is I tell them that, you know, they're, they're in charge, right? Like, I want them to know that they're in charge. I do a lot of uh, pre-reporting uh, to find out if those kids have triggers, um, if there's things that I should avoid talking about, because I never want to do additional harm um, to somebody I'm, I'm interviewing, especially a, a young person. Uh, so, you know, I, I find that too, that, you know, if we don't, if you don't have empathy, you cannot, you cannot do these stories. You cannot tell these stories because the, the, the heart of what I do, I think is I go bathe in people's lived experiences. I try to uh, sponge up as much of that as I can uh, I'll never, I'll never understand, right, their feelings and what they've been through. But I try to get as close to that as I can, uh, immerse myself in it, so that I can then put it on the page, right? I can't, I can't properly convey that 
their experience to a reader if I haven't tried to feel as much of it as I possibly can. And I think that starts with empathy, right? I don't think that you can, I don't think you can do this job if you, if you are not an empathetic person. I mean, you can maybe do other types of journalism, but I think, you know, a, a deep narrative on uh, people suffering, I don't think you can do it if you um, aren't someone who is capable of, 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 of empathy and, and lots of empathy. Yeah. You know, um, when you mentioned covering courts at the, or cops at the Tampa Bay times, it, it, you know, um, it reminded me of a story that we talked about when you were on the podcast the first time. Um, uh, and I, I see some elements of it in the work you're doing at the Washington post. And that was the story when you had to go, you had to go to the story on the, um, when the infant drowned in the family swimming pool. Um, is that, do you think about that? I mean, has that had an impact on, on how you've gone the route you've gone? You know, I think, I think that story and, and a lot of stories that I, you know, I was covering a lot of, of tragedy and a lot of violence in Florida. Um, you know, cause I covered an entire uh, County. I was the cops and porch reporter in an entire County. That was my, my first job there in, in Tampa. And, um, you know, I, I think that uh, so much of that was a training ground for for what I do now. Um, you know, being respectful of people's uh, loss, and you know, there, I, I think I had talked about this probably on the podcast before, but I do think often about um, the decisions that you know Mike Wilson is the editor. He was the I think at that time he was the managing editor in Tampa, and. Um, you know, he, he left, uh, he left a couple of details out of the story. You know, Mike, Mike really guided me through that entire piece, the telling of it, the structure of it. And then also, um, we left a couple of details out of that story. Uh, one of them was, um, uh, one of them was that the dad was, uh, vomiting in the house. Um, when they told him the mom, they hadn't told the mom yet. And they wouldn't. They hadn't brought her in the home yet because inside the, the dad was vomiting. That's a detail that you know. Uh, all these years later, I still wrestle with. You know, that's one that I still wrestle with, and that I'm conflicted about whether that was a detail we should have included. But there was another detail that Mike uh, chose to leave out that I uh, was absolutely the right choice, and it was that um, one of the older siblings had left the door open. And that's how the infant, uh, that's how the toddler got out and, and drowned. And, and that was absolutely the right choice. It was a wrenching and powerful detail, but it would have, it wasn't necessary. It was not a necessary detail and it would have done uh, potentially harm, right? And, and not to say that we include details all the time that do harm, right? That's not the only measure, but it's, there is a calculation you make with every single story to say, you know, is this fact, is this bit of truth, is it worth including or not? And what did what would that have added versus what harm would that have done? And and I think you know Mike absolutely made the right choice there, and that is definitely something I think about all the time. And you know when I'm considering uh, details, I think all the time about you know is this necessary? Does this advance the story? Does it make it more true? And also, what will be the impact? Right? What how will this affect this family or this person or this child? Like, I I do think about those things all the time. Well, we're going to take a short break. Um, We will be back in one minute with more from John Woodrow Cox. 
This is Gangry the Podcast. Gangri the Podcast is brought to you by the Digital Journalism Program at Fairfield University. The Bachelor of Arts degree in Digital Journalism is a rigorous 12-course program designed to provide students with the skills, knowledge, and experience needed to take part in today's quickly changing media world. The podcast is also brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield University. The college grounds students in the 500-year-old Jesuit tradition of academic rigor and personal reflection while providing them with the critical skills needed to succeed in work and life. To learn more about the Digital Journalism Program and the College of Arts and Sciences, visit www.fairfield.edu. Welcome back to Gangry, the podcast. I'm Matt Tullis, and I'm talking with John Woodrow Cox of The Washington Post. John, I, I realized I should have, at the very beginning, told you congratulations on, on being, being a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in feature writing back in 2018. Thank you. Um, Thank you. I, I, I found in, in so many ways that the story about Isaiah Marquez Green and, and the Marquez Green family um, fits in some ways to the, to the type of stories that were included in, you know, in, in the Pulitzer finalist series, you know, because they are obviously um, uh, survivors of, of a, a, a gun violence um, uh, incident. Um, but also now that you mentioned you're also working on, on how children are being impacted by, by COVID, I see it's hitting on, on that layer too. Um, can you talk about the work, especially from, um, from the, the gun violence um, series that you did and this is back in 2017. So can you talk a, right. a little bit about, you know, how that came about, what the idea was and kind of what those stories are really focused on? So um, in some ways, the, the, this sort of genesis of, of, of my, what's become uh, the season of my career, it began in, in really in 2015 where I, I wrote a story um, in my first full year at the post about a, uh, a, a girl who was born with HIV and who was uh, going through the process of, of learning that that's what she had. She didn't know that she had HIV. And so I followed her for like six months and was in the room when the doctor delivered this news. And, uh, you know, that story, uh, you know, uh, reached a big audience. And um, my, my editor, uh, Linda Robinson, uh, I'd written that, and then I'd written some other short pieces uh, for the Post about kids, and she just thought that I kind of had this, um, for whatever reason, a natural ability to to write about children. And so she had mentioned this idea about a, uh, a project on children and violence, uh, just sort of broadly. At that stage, it wasn't even gun violence; it was just children and violence. And I would be interested in that, and because she she thought it was this really an undercovered area, and uh, I was I was interested and and had planned to explore that in 2016, and then I had a big um, kind of crazy project uh, come along in 2016 that consumed um, that entire year, so I didn't start it until 2017, and and very quickly it became clear that what it needed to be really was focused on on gun violence, and so I followed um, I did seven 
I think I did seven stories or six. I think I did six stories uh, over the course of that year, um, exploring from all these different lenses uh, how gun violence, how the epidemic of gun violence um, impacts children in America. And, uh, you know, the first piece was about a, um, a boy in uh, southeast Washington, D.C., who, whose father had been shot to death in the middle of the day uh, right outside of his school. He was the kid was in second grade at the time, Tyshawn. Um, and so I, uh, I followed, you know, him through, I, I actually met him at the vigil and before the funeral, I sat next to him at the funeral and, you know, uh, followed him on the first day, went back to school. And, and that was the first piece in the series. And, um, and then the second piece in the series was about a, uh, a shooting, um, at a school in, uh, elementary school in South Carolina that no one remembered and no one still remembers uh, because only one child died. Um, it was a, a group of first graders on a playground. A teenager pulls up and opens fire and, um, and his gun jammed. And that's why he only killed one kid. And so I, I you know, did a deep dive on those kids. And, and that actually, those two stories ended up being the foundation for uh, this book that um, I have since written. Those two kids uh, are sort of the central figures of the, of the book. But, you know, that year I went everywhere. I went to Cleveland, um, for, a there was a road rage incident where a four-year-old had been shot in the head and survived. And I went to Las Vegas. I was in Las Vegas for a couple of weeks following a group of teenage girls who had been at the, the concert, um, went to Chicago for a story there. Uh, and then did a story about a, a shooting in Virginia. So, you know, the idea was just, sort of turn the lens and turn the lens and turn the lens and, and, you know, try to show people what that experience is like for, for children, um, who go through these things. Yeah. Uh, considering you're dealing with, um, uh, you're, you're interacting with so many people who've been through so many, so many traumatic events. What's that like for you in terms of, I'm, I'm thinking basic, like your own mental health and your own, you know, psych psychology. Is it, is it, is it draining? You know, it, it is, <laughs> it's draining. I, I, uh, um, you know, it takes, it definitely takes a toll. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty good at compartmentalizing, um, and, uh, sort of setting things aside to some degree. I, I and I'm good at, I'm pretty good at moving on from stories when I'm in a story, I, I will say I'm not great at compartmentalizing, but you know, it's, it's, it, in some ways it's, it, it's really gotten a lot harder during the pandemic because the way that I would, um, you know, deal with these things is to just get away, to take a trip to, uh, you know, my wife and I would sort of do these, you know, big trips to places we get out of the country. And I always found that to be very therapeutic and would help me kind of clear out all the, uh, you know, secondary trauma that I maybe was dealing with. And, you know, that's all gone now. Um, you know, all the travel I'm doing now is for work. You know, I, I've just, uh, Saturday, I came back from New Orleans for the next piece in this series, and I'll go back down to New Orleans next week for, you know, more reporting. And that's a, a very dark story. Uh, so, you know, how you, uh, how you, how reporters deal with this during the pandemic, I mean, is, is, is trickier. I mean, because so many of us are covering uh, really dark subjects right now. Um, and, you know, it's it's gotten harder. It was always hard, but it's definitely gotten harder. I haven't entirely figured out the sort of the best way 
uh, to manage that. I am somebody who I, I don't, you know, right now I don't, I don't see a counselor. I don't see a therapist, but I am certainly a big proponent of therapy and counseling. And, and if ever I felt like I needed it, I, w- I would not hesitate, um, to see one, um, you know, for the, for the, for the time being, I'm, uh, probably drinking too much. <laughs> to <be perfectly laughs> I think everybody honest. is right now. During yeah, I think we all are <laughs> right now. Um, you know, and, and, you know, just having family and, and faith, you know, all those things, right. uh, I think for so many of us, uh, has been really, you know, critical right now. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I will say that I feel like it's a real privilege, uh, for me to get to tell these stories. I feel like, you know, that this is, um, this is what I am meant to do and what I am called to do at this moment in my life. I don't think I won't do this forever. You know, like I, it's not sustainable to tell these sorts of stories forever. Uh, you just, you just shouldn't do that. Uh, you can't do that. Um, but for right now, I feel like this is what I'm, I'm meant to do. And I'm, I feel like it's a real honor and a privilege to, to, that these people are willing to talk to me, you know, that they're willing to open up and, and share their stories. Yeah. I mean, I think about, you know, so many, um, other reporters who've done this this type of work, you know, and the first one that comes to mind is Jim Sheeler with with Final Salute. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's hard, but those stories are I think are so important for people to read so they can understand what other people are going through. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And and I feel like, um, you know, I feel like that's just that's just uh, uh, somebody has to tell the stories, right? Like somebody has to do it. And it's like, well, why, why not me? You know, like why, why should uh, I expect somebody else to do it? Cause you're at, you, you said it perfectly. These are people need to understand that these experiences are, are uh, happening. They need to understand that this is what other people are living through. And, you know, that is our, that is our duty. I mean, truly, I, I view it as a duty. This is our job. This is our duty to go tell these stories. And I, I know that, like, you know, different reporters had different gifts and different callings and, and were uh, good at different things. You know, there are a lot of types of stories that I can't do, um, but this is the type of story that I can do for at least this period of my life. And so I'm, uh, I feel like this is what I'm supposed to do. Yeah. So you, you, you mentioned your book. Um, it's coming out on March 30th, 2021, at least what I saw online, titled yes. Children right. Under Fire, an American Crisis. Um, you mentioned is it, it's focusing on um, two of the children from your, your series from a couple years ago? Right, yeah. So um, one is uh, Tyshawn McFadder, who is, um, um, he was in Washington, D.C. He was in second grade at the time of his dad's uh, shooting. And then the other is on a, a little girl named Ava Olson, who um, was in first grade and was on the playground on the day of the shooting there. Her, her best friend, this boy she uh, loved dearly and had wanted to marry when she grew up, he was he was killed. He was the one uh, child who was killed there. And so she's dealt with, they both dealt with uh, really significant trauma. She has, you know, diagnosed uh, PTSD and and what happened was, you know, after I wrote those stories, um, there was one day when Ava's mother was um, reading the story about Tyshawn on her phone, and Ava noticed that she was upset, that her mother was upset, and Ava asked why she was upset, and uh, Mary, who was her mother, shared a few of the details about Tyshawn and, and showed her a uh, photo 
that's how Sean didn't didn't go into all the detail, you know, the story, but said that basically he'd lost his father and showed him uh, showed her a photo. So Ava, who is a prolific uh, letter writer, decided to write him a letter. She wanted to be his pen pal. And so they struck up this friendship, a really deep friendship that exists still today. Um, and so much of the story follows their uh, their journeys and their friendship, and uh, then also the, the impacts, how deeply they've been affected by gun violence. And it branches out and t- tells lots of other stories and gets into policy as well. But their sort of uh, their story is really kind of the heart of the uh, of the book. Yeah. Are you? I mean, is the book done? You're kind of just you're waiting it for is. that date. Yeah, I'm just waiting at this point. Fact check. Uh, which was utter misery <laughs> is, is done. <laughs> I've done all that. I've, I've, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing some of the last sort of, well, I'm doing the promotional things and sort of moving them to that stage, but you know, the writing is all done. It's been proofread. It's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's done, which is a, a surreal feeling, but yeah, it's a, it's a good feeling. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to, to March 30th and I'll get myself a copy and, and, and definitely give it a Thank read. You. Um, you said you're 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 doing stories right now, um, you know, and, and this is is how the the story about Isaiah and his family fits in on on children and and COVID, right? Um, right. What uh, what um, where are you in that? And I think you said you have a couple coming up. Can you can you say anything about those? Uh, so I have um, I have one and, and hopefully two, uh, depending on. Uh, on the election and kind of how much time that, that ends up consuming. Right. Um, but the hope is to have two more by the end of the year. Um, you know, I can't, I can't go into too much detail about the one in, in New Orleans yet, but, um, you know, it's just, it's just another piece that illustrates how much, uh, you know, the pandemic is impacting kids. We have this, we have this idea that because, children are not particularly vulnerable to it, that they're, that they're sort of unaffected by it. We so often uh, are dismissive of, of kids' lived experiences in this country because they don't, have, uh, they don't have a voice. They don't have platforms to share their experiences. But, um, you know, what I've found and what I always find is that, you know, kids are impacted by everything and they're, they're paying attention. And, um, you know, I think I've done three, I think I've done three stories to this point. The first was about the children of healthcare workers. Uh, and how stressful this has been for them, and you know, seeing their parents get sick, seeing their parents have to move out, uh, you know, especially early on, which is when I wrote that piece. There was so much uncertainty about uh, who could get it and how deadly it was, and uh, and I, you know, I did that story entirely, almost entirely. I did some live scene, but almost entirely through Zoom. I was interviewing kids all over the country about, you know, through Zoom about. <laughs> their experiences. And then the, the second piece was the story in Michigan about the, the three uh, children who lost both of their parents um, to COVID in the span of uh, 20 days. Uh, both of their parents died. And then the third was about um, Isaiah. And then the hope will be to do, uh, to do two more if I can, if I can squeeze them in before January one. Well, well, John, I'm glad you're doing these stories. I think they're important, and 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 hopefully they're they're making an impact uh, uh, as people read them. I hope so. Um, it's been it's been so great talking with you again. 
Um, and and yeah, maybe, you know, I'll still be doing the podcast again, not in seven years, but we'll get, we'll, at some point, maybe we'll, we'll talk again <laughs> for a show. Um, and if it's in 2027, then I don't know what's going on with my life. So, but, uh, thanks well, I again. I hope we do talk again, Matt. I, I appreciate you and I appreciate this podcast. I just, you know, it's great to have a venue to, to talk about these things. Thanks a lot, John. Have a great day. All right, Matt. Thank you. That was John Woodrow Cox, an Enterprise reporter for the Washington Post. He just wrote a moving story on the Marquez Green family in Connecticut. They lost their daughter Anna at Sandy Hook and recently had to make a hard decision as to whether they would send 16-year-old Isaiah back to school in the middle of the pandemic. Cox has a book coming out in March of next year that is focused on gun violence and its impact on children. The title of that book is Children Under Fire, an American Crisis. As usual, I've linked to a lot of what we talked about on the show. You can find those links and more at gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at gangrypodcast. Gangry is spelled G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. You can also like the podcast on Facebook. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any Google Play app. Just search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. Podcast. Gangry the Podcast is produced in Donnarumma Studios at Fairfield University. It's made possible by Fairfield University's Digital Journalism Program and the College of Arts and Sciences. Our music comes from Audionautics. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us. Mm-hmm.